Building a business ain't easy. It takes hard work, dedication, and strength. This is Success Failed with Philip Long. Must know tips for executives going through the trials and tribulations of growing their own business. Now, here's your host, Philip Long. Great show for you this month. We have Miss Casey Williams. She is the president and executive director of the Eastern Shore Chamber of Commerce. And uh, from my point of view, I think she is a very qualified and a very passionate uh, person that has done a lot for the Eastern Shore Chamber as well as our community in general. So you're going to be really want to listen to what she has to say about really her upbringing and the challenges that she faced throughout her career as well as what the Eastern Shore Chamber is doing for our community. The thought of the month is going to be about really about pressure and about how we respond to pressure. And then finally we have a very tragic uh, cybersecurity breach uh, for the month, and that is uh, what happened over at a hospital during a ransomware attack where we are seeing that this is going to be our first uh, casualty from a cybersecurity attack. So this is really something you're going to listen to. So, well, welcome to the show. Let's jump right in. Cyber attack analysis. Let's break it down. Our breach this month is absolutely tragic, and I think that it really puts a focus on the importance of cybersecurity, and uh, this is coming from the Wall Street Journal. This is a, uh, the, the title is, A Hospital Hit by Hackers, A Baby in Distress, in the Case of the First Alleged Ransomware Death. Now again, this is being litigated now, so we don't want to jump to conclusions. We always want to get the facts before we go, but at the end of the day, here are some facts, is that in July of 2019, um, the Spring Hill uh, Medical Center in Mobile, Alabama was hit with ransomware, and on July the 16th, 2019, a woman walked in to have a baby, and she did was not aware of, at the time that the computers had been disabled on every floor for eight days trying to do, um, you know, the cleanup after a ransomware attack. And there was some monitors that were not available because of the systems were down and the patient records weren't available and you know a lot of things were uh you know offline from a technology standpoint due to ransomware and at the um one of which was a, a heart monitor system that this baby you know desperately needed in order to know and at the end of the day tragically this baby passed so for this to happen here in mobile alabama is you know terrible for us you know and i'm, I'm you know our hearts go out to this woman and all that but as it relates to cybersecurity, it really makes us uh, hyper aware of how technology touches uh, the services that are offered, especially in the in the healthcare industry. And you know, if you look at the HIPAA high tech law, and like I do a lot of HIPAA risk assessments, and one of the things that is on there is the understanding that. Part of the HIPAA high-tech ruling was to be able to um, present or deliver care to patients under 
um, you know, adverse situations. You know, it can be anything from a tragic event like this ransomware attack to the power being out, a hurricane in the Gulf or whatever. And we have to plan for those contingencies so that we're able to deliver the health care that is needed in a fashion that's going to end in a good result. So again, this is very tragic. We're going to keep an eye on this case. Um, and we'll let you know a little bit later as it kind of works its way through the court systems. But this uh, right here in Mobile, Alabama, is uh, reportedly the first uh, death from ransomware. And again, I want to say this is alleged at this point. This case has not been fully through the court system, but it's something we're going to keep an eye on. Interview an expert. Now, let me introduce you. Welcome to another episode of Success Failed with Philip Long. I have a special guest, Ms. Casey Williams, and she is the president and the executive director of the Eastern Shore Chamber of Commerce. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here this morning. Yeah. Really excited to have you uh, uh, just because of the things that you guys are doing. And, you know, I wanted to have you specifically because I had heard how your uh, influence had brought such a breath of fresh air into that uh, Chamber of Commerce. And I'm a member of every Chamber of Commerce around, so you're the one that I picked because I wow. thought, at least uh, from my view, that you were doing a really great job. So. Well, thank you. That, that's, a, that's very kind, and, and I appreciate that. But yep. I, do, I do love what I do, and yep. it's in this exciting time to be um, in the business community. Okay, great. Well, I want to talk. I want to start back a little bit more. Let's talk about where you grew up and and uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. From uh, you, you know, where where did you grow up? We'll get started. I grew up in Daphne, Alabama. Yep. Um, and actually live in the house now that was my childhood home. Uh, my sister lives behind me, and my daughter lives across the street. So we have us a compound right there. Um, I. My grandchildren will be the fifth generation to grow up on the Eastern Shore of Mobile Bay. And I think that's what drives my passion for our community as a whole and our region. Um, I believe that we all have to work together in coastal Alabama, Mobile County, Baldwin County to really um, make our area and coastal Alabama the very best it can be. So. You know, I love this role. I love, uh, my dad was a small business owner. He had a drafting, drafting and design firm, built, uh, designed a lot of the houses. Um, he was the only person over this way for many, many years. And so a lot of folks are like, your dad designed my first house, or, you know, they, they know him. And he also worked with the chamber um, as executive director back when it was, it was more part-time um, with uh, full-time admin. So I ran around the Chamber of Commerce offices where we still are today uh, as a child and got to joke the Christmas parade and, and all kind of cool things. So it's um, my banking career has spanned 35 years. And when this opportunity to take on the Chamber came around for the second time in about five years, um, I was at a point in my life where I could go from a bank executive to a nonprofit director and uh, took that opportunity, and this is career number two. 
Great. Tell me about the banking industry as far as uh, you, you spent 35 years in that, right? Yes, I did. What changes did you see over those 35 years? Was there a lot of changes? Money lending is a lot the same, I guess. You're measuring risk and you know all that, regulated by the government a lot. So yes. what changes did you see? Well, um, first of all, the regulations um, became much more stringent um, after the recession and the mortgage industry debacle. Um, so the, the restrictions were such that sometimes one, one area of the government would place some fair housing, fair lending rules, and then another area of the government would put into place um, certain things you had to do that if you if you did one or the other, you're in violation of one or the other. It was almost it was, conflicting. It, it was conflicting and sure. very confusing. And often, you know, a lot of the rules, regulations, and things like that are made by people who have never been a banker, um, especially for a community bank. Most of the banks that I have always been associated with were community-based banks where you take care of folks because you're going to church with them. You're, you know, your kids are on the same volleyball team or Girl Scouts or whatever. So um, the big mega regionals and big national banks, you know, and community banks are, are different animals. And so the regulations were a huge piece of the changes over those 35 years. But then at the same time, I think there became a new and renewed focus on meeting the customer where they were. Yeah. Um, I was sales and service for a bank holding company for 15 years. And literally, you know, instead of being an order taker, how do we create the environment where every single person down to the person on the teller line can help you with your questions, direct you to the right person, so instead of just cashing the check, um, we were we began to teach people how to be uh, customer service savvy, and that was a huge change for banking um, in the past several years. And now you see much more of that from you know the bigger banks all the way down to your local bank. And it's how do we serve and how do we help our customers be more financially savvy and financially safe. Do you think that came because of, you know, I'll use Baldwin County because I'm also a Baldwin Countyite, lived here all my life, and we have seen, in my view at least, an enormous influx of banks over the past, you know, since I've been paying attention, let's say 20 years, especially in the, probably the past, what, 10 years? Absolutely. Yeah. And do you think some of those changes were made because of uh, the competition? Well, absolutely, because, you know, a dollar is a dollar. You know, any, any bank can cash a check. But how do you make your customers want to do business and have a relationship? Because at the end of the day, whether it's banking or anything else, you like to do business with people you know, people you trust, and people who you know will work to help take care of you, whether you're, you know, going through a good time or a bad time. Yep. So I think that really shifted, and you see a lot more smaller community banks certainly coming into our area. Yeah. Um, and they all seem to be doing well and thriving and being successful. But you don't have to be, um, you don't have to have forty branches anymore because of technology. True. So where you used to have, if you were in Mobile, you might have five branches from one end of Government Street to the other. 
you don't necessarily have to have as many branches. Therefore, the personal service when somebody comes into the bank is so critical. Um, you know, people use technology, but when it push comes to shove and they have a problem, they want to know who they're talking to yep. at their bank. Yeah, I'm a small bank kind of guy. I like that kind of feel of uh, kind of knowing somebody. Matter of fact, I mean, just completely transparency here. I'm doing some, a couple things. I'm developing 40 acres and I'm messing around doing some stuff with some land and I've got several ventures always going. And I called up my banker buddy and I'm like, hey man, uh, I wanna buy you lunch and I want you to consult with me because I am a huge advocate of, of getting good counsel. Absolutely. Because, and that's where, you know, a good banker who's not looking out for his best interest, you know, uh, I mean, they got to, you know, again, I always tell them, you got to let me make a little something or you won't have me to kick around. You know, I get it, yeah. but you don't want them, uh, you know, giving you poor advice. And so you have to have people that you well, can really trust. Every small business needs a great banker. They need a good CPA and they need to have an attorney that they are comfortable with. Um, because everything, depending on the number of employees you have, um, there's so many regulations with, with human resources. Yeah, that's having, what I would a res say, yeah. having a res human resource person, um, they need to be your inner circle, your trust circle, um, as you're making decisions so that you know you make the right decision the first time around. Well, great. And so whenever you were leaving banking, was it that you were, that, did you feel like, sometimes I, like, I'll leave a peer group or whatever and, uh, you know, uh, because, and I'll move to the next one because I feel like really the, the you know, the juice and the squeeze is, uh, the ratio is getting out of whack, you know, where I feel like, you know, I've done this and I've, I've gained what I'm going to gain. And, you know, I believe you can always learn more in any area if you keep focusing, but, you know, law of diminishing returns kind of thing. Why did you leave the banking industry per se? Um, it was, I loved what I did. I managed 17 branches, 125 people, and I'm one of the rare birds that loves to manage people. Um, managing people, if you are, really have their, their the, have your employee base in your heart. Um, you know, where do they want to go? How do I develop them? How do I move them into an area that they can be successful? Um, I loved working in the branch atmosphere because I was right there with the customer level. Um, but it was really more of just something came up, like the chamber director position, that I'd always wanted to do. And that aligned with my, like I said, my ability to go from a, uh, executive vice president by to a nonprofit director there's yeah. there's a little bit difference there in your in your salary um, so it just all kind of converged at the right time and my daughter was graduating from Auburn I was getting married and and I wanted to have a little more flexibility in my hours so if I wanted to travel you know those kind of things so it wasn't really that I left banking because I truly loved what I did and I truly loved the people I worked with and for um, but it was it was just that that next step that I knew one day I would want to do and here it was yeah awesome so I want to ask you about some challenges all right you're coming on to uh, into an organization that uh, you had 
obviously you had a lot of ideas and obviously a lot of them have worked uh, from my, at least from my, what I see happening over there. I'm sure there was some naysayers, some negative Nellies around, and I know we don't want to get too, you know, I want to, we don't want to name any names, but you had to change the culture. You had to change the mindset. You had to, those are big challenges. And a lot of people, you know, they shrink back from challenge and, you know, they, and that's why most things stay status quo. So what is your approach to changing, you know, being a change agent in an organization that, um, you know, how do you go about that? What's the, what's the magic bullet? You know, I don't know if there's a magic bullet, but um, recently I was on a professional chamber Facebook page and somebody was new to the chamber world and they were going to set out and go visit the members and I said, well, make sure that it's divided between members who are active and enjoy the chamber, promote the chamber, you know, your, your, your golden members, but be sure you spend more time with those who haven't attended anything in a while, who maybe you know, rumor has it, they're not happy with the chamber. And you know, my best moment when I got here is I had two folks who are now my biggest cheerleaders who have been through the last five years with me, but I listened for two hours about issues that they saw, things that they had not been happy about, um, things that they had heard in the community and so we were at a point where we needed to really assess everything we were doing you know where are we going what do we want to look like also while hearing from the membership group um things that we could do better and, and you can't get your feelings hurt about that yeah. you know i could easily say well i didn't have anything to do with that but the the moment i stepped into that role um, with the chamber was the moment that I had to accept everything that had gone before in order to move forward. So as a change agent, and I'm not overly afraid of change. Um, some people are. Sure. I think one of my favorite, I once heard, change is only bad when it's not your idea. You know? And yeah. so, but the chamber does so much, and that was something else that became forward in my mind is you know we do workforce development we do uh, we promote tourism for the eastern shore uh, we are an advocate and have governmental affairs and do forums and voters guides and all of those kinds of things and then we have members that are nonprofits to you know mega mega corporations um, so how do you serve so many different people they all need something different and that's where the conversations have to come in you know what is it that I can do for your business um, but also being a member of the chamber is, is benefiting the whole business community we do webinars we do um, smart business academies uh, like I said we actually most people don't realize we we do the youth leadership program which are some of the best and brightest from all high schools on the Eastern Shore and homeschool, and we put them through like a Leadership Baldwin program. They have Agriculture Day, they have Law and Government Day, um, so that they learn about our community, so then they get out of school, they want to come back here. And so many of them don't realize the, the full measure of how 
amazing our community is along the eastern shore yeah there and there really does i mean this is the most wonderful place on the planet to live in my uh humble opinion and uh, i would agree yeah so uh, we agree completely on that so i guess you don't really have any influence over the department of transportation and getting 31 finished up do you no i don't (laughs) although based on my role i do have a seat um i do sit in on the MPO Technical Advisory Committee, which is kind of funny because that's probably the, I'm not the most technical, but I do bring a voice and say, okay, from a, from a, from a viewpoint of someone who is not in the engineering or construction or the, you know, the technical aspect Uh of our infrastructure, you know, I've learned a lot. And, you know, I learned how much goes into a project like 31. It's not just cut down the trees and pave the road. You've got utilities to move and you can only do one part and that part's got to get done before you do this part. So, you know, I have learned a lot about the challenges and um, with our rapid growth along the Eastern shore, you know, we can't pave the road ahead of the traffic fast enough because people still have to drive on the road. Exactly, yeah, that's the challenge. And I think really where in most cases, it's usually that there's not a clear way of communicating what's really happening that brings about frustration and perceived, uh, you know, concepts begin to formulate and they're often not good. You know, when we have a problem, we don't perceive it uh, in the in the best light sometimes. You know, when I grew up, I could drive from Johnson Road and Daphne to where you veer off to go to Fairhope and not see another car. There were no red lights. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, those of us who've been, who have lived in this area for a long time, if we sit through a red light twice, you know, we are... Livid, yeah. We're, we're like, what, what's going on here? Sure. And so the reality is, you know, our roads are much busier. They're much more crowded. Um, Especially that area with, you know, all the way up 225 and out 31 on further. Right. That is is a major amount of traffic that goes east and west and north and south right there every day uh, for sure. So if I, like, coming here to Robertsdale, you know, usually it's a pretty quick 20 minutes and, you know, that was not the case um but you know there's um and there's so much going on i mean in the the programs that they're looking at like 10 20 30 years Mm -hmm. of what our infrastructure needs to to look like and um it's pretty much going to be a constant process just off you know just a thought i had about you know when i look at you know like mobile and i see you know to me i see an enormous amount of potential moving that airport down you know on the water using our you know we have all those boats stacked up off the coast of uh of california and i get it it's a longer route to get here for sure but i bet you could get a lot of things done cheaper more effectively and you know it's a different uh, business climate than out there yeah i would love to see mobile really you know shine what have you heard anything more about a bridge It's a constant conversation um, among many groups, and um, I am fortunate to be able to go to some of the meetings and hear about, you know, where we are. Um, I'm in touch with a lot of groups who, you know, that's a main focus. And 
and you know they're just really trying hard to figure out a way to get it done sure. I know that they've talked about doing it in phases but the problem with that you build a bridge that's four lanes on each side and it's got to eventually get on to the bayway which is just two lanes and so we're hoping that we can figure out a way to do the bridge and expand the bayway at the same time because eventually you're going to have a bottleneck wherever that well, we have you know, a bottleneck oh well yeah. and, and it you know it, it's not going to help if you only get to go a few miles more yeah. eventually so you know and it's just it's not it's so much more complicated it seems easy to build a bridge but you know the, the first time around um we we had to scrap those plans but with the npo and mobile and the eastern shore npo both putting the bridge project back on their long-range plan we are now once again eligible for federal funding so there's the infrastructure bill and that's going trying to go through um uh, in Washington so you know there's a lot of people trying their best to figure out a way to get it done we all know it needs to be done the truckers association everybody sure. is on board but you know it's it's a huge task you know it's gonna make 31 look like a walk in the park because yeah. you know there's it's so many more moving and parts. it takes so much longer so it's it's interesting I love to be a part of that and hear what's going on and know that they're everybody is working together to figure out the best way to do this yeah what's your uh, like what do you see for the eastern shore in the uh in the time to come or you know do you see any major things happening that are uh you know noteworthy or that you kind of have your uh you know that's on your radar well you know the main thing that impacts the eastern shore and everything we do is our growth it affects our school systems it affects our roadways um, you know it's a it's a good problem to have some people would prefer not to grow at all but that genie's out of the bottle so I think it's really important that we come together and figure out how to manage that growth without you know harming the environment that is you know something I'm very passionate about how do we keep the beautiful water vistas that we have, Mobile Bay safe to for recreation and, and other surrounding, um, you know, Fly Creek, Fish River, all of those. And so I think that is going to be the topic of conversation for quite some time. Um, you know, with that influx of people, it does bring in, you know, additional tax dollars and things that we can do for the community. It's exciting to see all these inclusive playgrounds that are going up. As a matter of fact, Daphne is opening uh, their um, inclusive playground there um, near the, the ballpark. And, you know, it, it, there's a lot of things that bring our people together. And I think it's important to help engage those that are moving into our area. Mm -hmm. Maybe they work in Mobile. Um, we actually had a Young Professionals joint um, event, our Chamber of Young Professionals and Mobile's Young Professionals. And we did an interesting thing where we had a map. And, it, and if you're from Mobile, you got a red pin and you would put the pin where you work. And then if you were from this side of the bay, you were a yellow pin. And it was really interesting to me that we have a lot of folks that commute from Mobile to the Eastern Shore to yeah. work, more so than I 
It had a magic. Yeah, we think of it the other way. This is the bedroom community of Mobile, right. but um, yeah, it's working both ways. But we're seeing both ways, um, and I think there's a, can be a lot of synergy there. You know, I love the fact that Mobile has a symphony, and you know, um, I think we we have a lot of bay access over here. Um, that Mobile, and hopefully with their new park and things they're doing, that'll that'll give citizens over there. But we have a tremendous amount of access to the bay at different parks and places along the eastern shore which I think is a tremendous blessing because um, you know there's just no place like it it's I have some folks that are here um, that I met last night who are from Canada and Arizona and all these different places they you know they had no idea that Alabama even had a coastline sure you know it surprises people um, a young woman who moved here my good friend Faith, they just drove down here after seeing a couple of television shows in our that were here in our area. And so they drove down, I think they stopped, if the, have the story straight, at Alligator Alley in Fairhope, I mean in Bowley, and they said, is there like a beach around here? I mean, did not know that Gulf Shores and Orange Beach was where it was. So, you know, we still, um, there's still a little bit of a hidden gem, even though we certainly have our share of visitors, but you know, that's the big thing is how do we grow? How do we bring people into um, the world of protecting our environment, protecting, you know, what makes this such a wonderful place to be? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you think of the diversity in just Baldwin County from the north to the south. I mean, it's like, you know, two different worlds almost. Absolutely. That's why we have five total chambers in Baldwin sure. County because we have such different areas and different needs and, and bases you know most people don't realize that Baldwin County is like the largest county east of the Mississippi it's two and a half hours from the northern point to the T down at Gulf Shores so you know that encompasses a lot of different um, you know there's a lot of agriculture here there's you know there's definitely on the island of Gulf Shores and Orange Beach it's tourism that is the driving force sure. there where on the eastern shore we're probably 95% small business, you know, mom and pop, like yep. not the government definition of less than 500 employees, but we literally are 10 or less employees, you know, where the owners are in their job working every day. Um, Which, you know, that really, that would lend itself to a much, uh, you know, very engaged, uh, you know, whenever it is small like that, you know, it's gonna have, you know, you have, we'll call the leader of the organization is very engaged. So yeah, that would make a special uh, special chamber and, and they're probably tapping into that has been helpful for you. Absolutely. And you know, I just, I love figuring out, you know, some people are a part of the chamber because it supports the business community, our STEPS program, which is at-risk youth, um, where we take them through ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade of program and they do, they go to Coastal Alabama Community College and see the animation program. They go to Daphne Utilities and spend a day and learn all the great jobs that they have. And we've graduated about 300 kids out of that program who stayed in school where when they started the ninth grade, they had an 80% risk of dropping out. So, wow. yeah. you know, um, that's workforce. That's, you know, keeping our kids engaged and letting them know that there's some really great things. Yeah. And that's really what makes our county, you know, I think special and it keeps it from, you know, that decay that could bring about, you know, because once the schools go, yes. the 
everything goes. And, you know, I know there's other factors in that, but, I mean, that's a lot of people that move here because of the schools. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the number one question I'm asked for people who are moving into this area. You know, do I have to go to a private school? Um, in Baldwin County, you don't. We have some great private schools. Um, but, you know, you don't have to go to a private school to get a great education. I think uh, Eddie Tyler does an amazing job uh, with our growth. Um, you know, the new school in Bell Forest. And, you know, that's no easy task. One coming to Silver Hill, you know. Absolutely. So um, we're fortunate that we have some visionary leaders that are keeping our education at that level. And um, that is always the number one question for people moving in our area. And, you know, on the other hand, on the other side of the spectrum, we have a lot of people who retire here. Yeah. so it's kind of an interesting an interesting dynamic here, but I think that keeps a nice balance. Keeps it all real. Well, I just want to just say thank you so much for uh, for sharing, and uh, we're thankful. You know, I'm thankful for people like you that are you know pouring back into our community. And, you know, it's easy to, to appreciate it and to see it and to enjoy it, but there's only, you know, a select few that are pouring back into it. So I want to just say thank you. And thank the world you needs know. needs more uh, Casey's in it. <laughs> well, thank you. Okay. I appreciate that. That's a brave statement, but I really do appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> All right. Well, good. Well, I uh, just want to again thank you. And uh, any last final words? You know, just just for folks because there's so much information that we get every day through all our social media and television is to you know really look out for things going on in the community figure out ways that you can find some kind of passion in your heart to give back and and know that um you know the eastern shore chamber is very committed to our our business community and we're happy to help figure out like what what a value can we bring and introductions or you know exposure through different things like that advertising so you know we're here to work on our business community which is the heartbeat of our our community overall small business they're the ones that pay for little league uniforms and send the volleyball team you know to a championship it is our small business that gives and gives and gives support your small business support local you know, buy local is not sitting on a ship outside of California, and these are people who, um, you know, the dollar goes so much farther. So, you know, shop local, take care of your small business, find ways to get involved, whether it's for a, you know, a couple of hours here and there or something that you're really passionate about. Because I think that's what makes our yeah. community great. It's weird how in, involvement in something for somebody else actually heals you. Uh, in a lot of ways. What is the website uh, for the Eastern Shore Chamber? ESChamber.com. ESChamber.com, great. And also we've launched in the past year and a half, it's ExploreEasternShore.com, which is a a brand new tourism website that has features our three cities, Daphne, Spanish Fort, and Fairhope. It also features where to eat, where to play, where to stay, and where to shop event planning and what we're finding is our locals are really enjoying um the the website themselves they're like you know I have company coming in town um it has some trips like historical trails food trails um everything that you probably may not even know about the eastern shore so um those are, are 
great websites to tap into. Great. Again, thank you so much. I know this is going to be very beneficial to everyone, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you so much. It's time to go inside Philip's head. Thoughts of the month. For the thought of the month, I want to talk about how we respond under pressure. And I was speaking with a guy the other night, and he told me that he does marriage counseling. And one of the things that he, that was prolific in his counseling, and one of the things that he really started with was how people handle adversity in a marriage relationship. And um, one of the things he said was that oftentimes, the person acts like their parents did, which makes absolutely perfect sense. Now, I think if we were to ask most people if they responded in the way that their parents did, they would say no. And of course, especially if it was in a negative way, they would say, no, I don't respond like them. But in reality, that is what has been modeled for us. So it's going to be the first response that's going to come so easy because we saw it time and time and time again whenever conflict happened, uh, a particular response of how someone did it. Well, I tested this theory the other day. I had a, a group and we were doing some leadership training and I asked uh, one of my guys, I'm like, hey, how do you feel like your father responded whenever he faced adversity? And he said, basically, you know, he would uh, get real quiet. You could see his uh, getting angry. And then he ultimately would leave the situation and you know never really air it out. But you knew he was angry, and he'd wind up leaving. And the funny thing was, is uh, I asked him this follow-up question. I'm like, do you think you respond in that way? No, no, no. I know that's how he responded. I didn't. So I went ahead and did a quick poll with the rest of the leadership team there about whether they saw those traits within him. And 100%, everybody's like, yeah, that's exactly how you respond. So we have to understand that that is going to be our default. And we have to put measures in place in order to, you know, recognize that. So the first uh, bit to change anything is awareness. So I think we have to ask ourselves is how do we respond and be honest and open. You could use your spouse or significant other or close friend in order to, uh, to go over that with them. And then uh, we have to think about ways of, uh, of changing. You know, what does change look like? How should I act? And then even maybe uh, having that person, you know, give a keyword or a signal to say, hey, you know, you sound like your dad or something in a way that's not going to, you know, further inflame the situation, but actually to help us respond in a way that is, uh, you know, obviously not negative and could be more positive. And I think... With that understanding, it's going to help us grow uh, in our uh, understanding of ourselves and our responses to difficult situations, especially as leaders. We have to be able to take a negative um, thing coming at us, and we have to respond in a positive way. And this is by far and away a learned or a trained activity because by default we're going to act the way it's been modeled around us and oftentimes it's not been modeled that well. Hope this is helpful guys. Have a great uh, month and we'll talk to you soon. Go out and make it happen. You've been listening to Success Failed with Philip Long. Check out AskBIS.com brought to you by BIS.